you're new, I'm Jamie, also one of the pastors around here, and it is my honor and privilege to be with you this morning. First Peter chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible uh, in the pew in front of you. Grab one of the black ones. First Peter chapter 2 is found on page 1014, bottom right-hand corner. We're going to pick up reading in verse 4, and we're going to read through verse 12. So I'll go ahead and read the passage. You'll see it on the screen and uh, pray for the Lord's help on our time together. And then we will work our way through this passage a little bit at a time. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling. Rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We come to you now, Father, as our Father, as our God, and as our King, as the one who illuminates his own word to our hearts. And we ask you to do the miracle that we cannot do on our own. Give us grace to understand what we read, and to see this cornerstone, chosen and precious, the one you call Son, the one we call Savior. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. 
She's called the people of God. She's called the body of Christ. She's called the bride of Christ. She's called the vineyard of God. She's called the flock of God. She's called the family of God. She's called the house of God. The temple of God. She's called the citizenry of the kingdom of God. She's called a pillar and buttress of the truth. Here, she is called a royal priesthood. Charles Adam Spurgeon called her the dearest place on earth. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that she is the kingdom of God made visible, calling those within the most privileged people on earth. And more recently, author Megan Hill called her a place to belong. Who are we talking about? Well, of course, talking about the church of Jesus Christ. She is not a building, though she may meet in one. She is a gathering of outcasts and exiles, men and women, young and old, single, married, from every walk of life, of every color and ethnicity which God was pleased to create. She is diverse in her personalities, in her parenting styles, in her politics. She is beautiful, wonderful, joy-inspiring, life-giving. She is a harbor in the storm, a beacon of light in the dark. She is a people whose laughter is free, whose peace is abundant, whose love is pervasive. All of this is true. Yet for some of us here, that has not been our experience with the church. I've heard many of your stories. I've wept over them. I feel them personally. For I too have suffered wounds at her hand. She is not perfect. At least not, at least not yet. However, she is a harbor. And who are those who seek harbor? Are they not those who have been caught in a storm, rained on? It is true what they say. Hurt people, hurt people. And so if you've been hurt by the church of Jesus Christ, I'm so sorry. Please do not give up on her. We don't close our hospitals because sick people are inside. Will go to be made well. So don't give up on the church of Jesus Christ when you find sinners inside. That's just where sinners go to get well. There's always room for one more. So we're taking a break from the Gospel of Luke. As these two churches, Cornerstone, Piqua, and Piqua Baptist Church, are closer to becoming one new church, well, I thought it would be good for us to spend some time considering what is the church? And today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to ask the question, what is the church? And in the next few weeks, Lord willing, 
we're going to consider who, who it is that leads this church, who it is that serves the church, and then finally, what is the purpose of, the mission of the church. So please be praying that fruit from our time together. The Bible has a lot to say about the church, and so we could go a lot of places. I've chosen to go to 1 Peter chapter 2 for a number of reasons. Primarily, it is because the audience to whom Peter writes, he, he, he writes to a people that he calls, in the opening, elect exiles of the dispersion. These were Christians who had been driven from their homeland by persecution from the Roman emperor. And this was written during a time when a person's identity was derived largely from their birthplace and their birth family. And so these are Christians who are living and facing a crisis of identity. Because without a family or without a fatherland, how would they know who they are? The purpose of their life. And so the Apostle Peter writes to these matters to tell them who they are. And more than that, he tells them whose they are. So here's the big point that we're driving to. You can see it on the screen here. The church is God's redeemed community built on Christ, who proclaims Christ, who models Christ, and who points others to Christ. The church is God's redeemed community of people, a people built on Christ, who proclaim Christ, who model Christ, and who point people to Christ. I'll have five points in this sermon. I just taught a class telling them not to ever preach a sermon with three or four, more than three or four points, and so here are five. I apologize, brothers, breaking my own rule. I'll go through each of the five points, and I'll let you know where we are so you can kind of gauge where we are in the, in the message. Number one, the church is built on Christ. That'll be our first point. The church is built on Christ. Number two, the church belongs to Christ. The church belongs to Christ. Number three, and you'll see this as we go along, the church proclaims Christ. So the church is Built on Christ, belongs to Christ, proclaims Christ. Number four, the church models Christ. The church models Christ. And then finally, the church points to Christ. So that's where we're headed. Let's get started. The church is built on Christ. We see this from Peter's words in verses 4 to 8. Let's read that part again. He's writing to the church and he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. How important when the proverbial rug has been pulled out from under your feet to know where you stand, to know upon what you stand. According to Peter, these Christians exiled from their homeland stand on the rock that is Jesus Christ. Peter's drawing from the Old Testament here, describing the Lord as a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So to those who have come to faith in the Messiah, Jesus, who suffered the rejection of their family, of their society, how important was it for them to know that Christ himself suffered the same? How important was it for them to know, as Peter says in verse 9, that they too are chosen, that they too are precious to God. You see, for many centuries, Christians all across the world have been separated from family and from friends for the sake of Christ. For some of you in this very room, that has been your experience. And so if that's you, would you take comfort in the words of the Lord Jesus from Mark chapter 10? Listen, what Jesus said to his disciples regarding this very thing. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses Brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. When you turn to Jesus and give your life to him, God unites you to his son. And gives you a family. As much as the church is anything, she is a community of the redeemed. And we'll look at this a little bit more in a moment, that, she's, that you were not, you know, Peter says you're, you were once not a people, but now you are a people. You're God's people. When you became a Christian, you became part of the family of God. And every Christian that you know is a brother or sister. Closer to you than even blood brothers and sisters. So for these exiled Christians, Peter puts their feet on the rock. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. He's telling them, your God is building you on the rock. Now the image of God building his church on a rock would have meant a lot to the Apostle Peter. Some of you know why. You'll remember that in, in the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry, Peter made the good confession. You remember Jesus said, Matthew 16, Who do you say that I am? Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? 
He said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The name Peter means rock. On this rock I will build my church. The Lord is saying that upon God's revelation of His Son, the person of Jesus Christ, and upon the, the confession of His people, which God gave to the apostles, Peter being the first apostle, upon that he would build his church. So the image of the church of Jesus Christ being built on the rock must have stuck with Peter. So he uses it here. And he grounds the reality of that in Old Testament prophecy to remind these exiles who they were. They are God's chosen people, built on Christ, built on the rock, the cornerstone, chosen and precious. And then Peter moves on to another element of this reality of being built on Christ. He says, this is who you are, a community of people built on Christ, but then he moves on to explaining whose they are. Point one was the church is built on Christ. Point two, then, is the church belongs to Christ. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Did you hear it there? Whose they are? You're a chosen race. You are a people of God's own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now, there's something in this text which should be obvious. But due to the limitations of the English language, it may not be obvious. All of the grammar in this section of Scripture is plural. You are a people. More fundamental to you as an individual is not that you are a person, but that you are a people. Every form of the word you in this passage is in the plural. It should be translated as y'all. The Southerners were right about that. And I point this out, of course, because it's one of the more difficult things to grasp as a post-Enlightenment American, which all of us are. Because we, as much as we are anything, we are a highly individualistic culture. That who I am is who I choose myself to be. I'm self-made, self-determined, self-governed. And we naturally view dependence on others as weakness, don't we? The first 
and great commandment of our age is, Thou shalt be thyself and express thyself. And the second is like it. Thou shalt accept everyone for being themselves and expressing themselves. And we hear this commandment so often that it feels real to us. But the Bible teaches that you are not who you feel yourself to be. That you are who God created you to be. Who God has declared and determined you to be. And so you've heard me say this many times, church. Your faith is personal. But it is not private. It has always been God's plan to reveal the glory of His Son through a people. At creation, God created male and female Two image bearers who come together and make more image bearers. In Genesis chapter 12, God came to Abram, a man, through whom he would create a people whose number was like the stars in the sky. It has always been God's plan to reveal himself through a people. In fact, the word church in the New Testament means assembly. Which can only happen when there are multiple people. The word means congregation, community. So one person a church does not make. Your friend who says, I do church in the deer stand, is not doing church. Besides, church is not a place you go to. It's not something you do. It's, it's, it's something you are. I, you may have heard people say, and I know what they mean, and they'll say, we just need to do church. I get, I get what you mean by that, but it's imprecise language. You don't do church. You are church. You're a community. In fact, the title of my sermon is imprecise. It shouldn't be, what is the church? Who is the church? The church is someone you are, and you are a people built on Christ, who belong to Christ, a people for God's own possession. And you should understand what Peter is doing here. He goes back. The language of this section of Scripture goes all the way back to very fundamental statements which God said to his people Israel after they were delivered out of Egypt. You remember the story. God delivers his people out of Egypt. And he brings him into the wilderness, and he tells them in Ex Exodus chapter 19, listen to the language here that God is speaking to his people. It sounds very familiar to what Peter's saying here. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests to me, a holy nation. Israel, God's redeemed people, who he redeemed for himself, was his. And through them, he would reveal the glory of his son. Peter takes that passage in Exodus 19, and he applies it to these elect exiles in the New Testament. Christian, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. 
Your God purchased your life with the blood of his own son. Jesus gave his life to redeem you from your sin and to gather you into a people and through you showcase the glory of his grace to the universe. That's who you are. That's whose you are. Which means you don't have to figure out who you are. You just need to read who you are. So if you're not a Christian, well, this may be the first time anyone's ever told you that you don't have to find yourself. I mean, think about that. What does that even mean? Like, if I am lost, then how can I be held responsible to find myself when I'm lost? And how would I know when I found myself? Is there a map? And if there is a map, then I would have had to write the map, and then I would have been lost in the first place. What are we asking people to do when we tell them, go to college and find yourself? You know what we're doing? We're strapping a target on their back and telling them to shoot an arrow at the target. You still don't even know what you do. But the good news is you don't have to. Because, my non-Christian friend, meaning is not found from inside of you. The purpose for your life is not to be found inside of you. Stop looking there. It's found from outside of you. It's found in the one who created you. And he's not left that as a mystery. He's told you here what your purpose is. Friend, when you sinned, when you rebelled against God, you were cut off from your creator and therefore cut off from the source of meaning and purpose in your life. So if you would find meaning, if you want to know who you are, there's only one place to go. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ, and he will unite you to your, his son, forgive you of your sins, and he will give you meaning to your life. He will give purpose to your life. You should do that today. Don't leave here still in your sins. After the service is over today, find someone who looks like a regular and ask them to tell you more about God's purpose for your life. Peter tells these elect exiles that they're being built on Christ, that they belong to Christ. It's who they are, it's whose they are. And next he goes on to tell them what they do. Who they are, whose they are, and what they do. So number three, third point, the church proclaims Christ. It's back up in verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's who you are people for his own possession. Choose you are. And if you write in your Bible, if you're one of those people who write in their Bibles, underline that word that. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So that's who you are, that's whose you are, and this is the what you do. Here now, your purpose, church of the living God. You exist to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That little word, that, in verse 9, is a conjunction pregnant with purpose. 
massive implications. Build your life on these implications. God chose you. God made you a royal priesthood. He made you a holy nation. He made you His people for a reason. And that reason in verse 9 is to announce, to report, to tell, to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You, fellow Christian, are a proclaimer. This is why God's people are a people of the book. Our mission, more than anything else, is to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Our God has chosen to reveal Himself through His Word. And our mission as His people is to speak His Word to others. And so we give our lives to mining the depths of the excellencies of Christ. To rest on them. To share them with others. And this isn't something that just the pastors do. Just the preachers do. It's what we do. Peter is writing to the church. He'll write to the elders in chapter 5, but right here, he's writing to you. Not just me. To all of us. God's word to the Christian is what food is to a chef. It is both the thing that keeps us alive and the thing which we live to share with others. We live by God's word and we live to share God's word. We are people of the book. Note that Peter says that we proclaim the excellencies of him. So we don't proclaim a system of religion. We don't proclaim a system of morality and ethics. Christianity is not a philosophy. What we proclaim is a person. The excellencies of Him. Our message is a man. Christ Jesus the Lord. This is the measure of the faithfulness of this church. To the degree that we proclaim Christ is the degree to which God will grant fruitfulness to this ministry. We will only be fruitful in the mission of God in this city to the degree that we proclaim the excellencies of Christ from the text of Holy Scripture. And so if at any point these two churches abandon the centrality of Christ preached, we become nothing. We become less than nothing. We become a club which offers no benefit to either her members or to her community. And may God forbid us becoming this and spare us that.
after Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and took his seat at the right hand of the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit fell on those early believers, 120 men and women, do you know what they did? Luke says they began to speak. Telling, to use Luke's own words, telling the mighty works of God. God, the Holy Spirit, gave His church the ability to speak. And you know the story in Acts 2, they spoke in many different languages, so the people who were gathered in the city from all over the place would hear them telling the excellencies of God, the wonders of God in their own language. And all of them were amazed, and all of them wondered what this was about. And you remember what happened. Peter stood up and preached. 3,000 people came to faith. Actually, let's read it. Keep your finger in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's go backwards in your Bible a little bit to Acts chapter 2. If you're still using one of the church Bibles, Acts 2, the passage we'll be reading is on page 910. Acts chapter 2. Peter stands up, preaches this message. 3,000 people come to faith. Let's, let's just pick up reading in verse 1. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So just remember what's going on here. We have 120 people gathered in the upper room praying, and God the Holy Spirit falls on them. They proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Peter stands up and preaches, and the church, which was 120 people, about as many people as are in this room right now, and all of a sudden, in a matter of hours, it becomes 3,120 people. 3,000 of whom who are new believers. That's something like 25 new believers for every believer. It's a logistical nightmare. As a pastor, that brings me a great anxiety. How in the world do you disciple 3,000 people? Well, I'll tell you. You just read it. Look what they devoted themselves to. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. The fellowship. The breaking of bread. And the prayers, four things. And the first, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. You, you see, this is because the apostles knew, and they, they knew because of the time that they had spent with Jesus, that God forms his people by his word. This, this is what church is. It is a people intent on community, surrounded by and gathered by and gathering around God's Word. We usually say the church grew. But the book of Acts says the Word multiplied and increased. The church is built on Christ. The church belongs to Christ. The church proclaims Christ. And then here... Now we come to number four, the church models Christ. So go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's pick up reading in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you 
as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter moves from telling these elect exiles who they were, from to whose they were, to why they are, and now he tells them how they are. They are God's people built on Christ, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, and they're to model Christ. Part of our identity as Christians is that we are sojourners. We are exiles. Strangers in a foreign land. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that our citizenship is in heaven. Hebrews chapter 13 says that here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. I recently overheard someone saying of the house that they had recently purchased, this is our forever home. And I thought, no, it isn't. Not in any sense is this your forever home. This might be the least forever home that you'll ever own. We are sojourners, strangers, loyal to a king of a different kingdom. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ creates culture. It creates a society. It creates identities. It changes loyalties. And the church of Jesus Christ functions in a lot of ways like an embassy. When you step foot in this place, you are standing on soil which belongs to the kingdom of God. Where our loyalties are to the king of the kingdom of God. Even within this country, which we love and serve and fight for, we are sojourners, exiles, citizens of heaven. This is something that even the founding fathers knew. When Thomas Jefferson wrote that famous separation of church and state, it was not to keep the church out of the state. It was to keep the state out of the church. Because this land belongs to the kingdom. And this divided loyalty of ours, this dual citizenship, if you will, will often put us at odds with our society, with our culture. And so the Bible warns us of becoming too comfortable, even in our homeland, which we love. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That makes it rather clear. Our loyalties lay with Christ. 
Which means, as Pastor Brent said earlier, we are to live separate from the world. But we're to do so in such a way without separating from the world. We're to live separate from the world without separating from the world. So, in verse 12, you see, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, some of us will say that it's best to withdraw from society at large, but I don't think that's what Peter had in mind here. One of the ways that we proclaim the excellencies of Christ is to model Christ before a lost and dying world. So that they would come and ask for the reason for the hope that we have within us. We proclaim the excellencies of Christ. We model the excellencies of Christ. And so make that real practical. Like our Lord, we're patient. We're kind. Like our Lord, we're compassionate and considerate. We consider others more important than ourselves. Like our Lord, we're humble. We do not envy or boast or never cutthroat or arrogant or rude. We, in, we refuse to insist on our own way. We're not irritable. We're not resentful. We bear all things. We believe all things. We endure all things. And do we do so perfectly? We don't. But to this we give our lives because this is what Jesus did for us. The one who was infinitely patient with us went to the cross and died for our impatience toward others. He who was infinitely exalted was infinitely humbled at the cross for the arrogance and rudeness and self-exaltation of those who put him there. We just sang it. It was my sin which held him there. God made the selfless one who was never arrogant for one moment to become my sinful arrogance in my place so that my arrogance would die with him in order that I might become selfless like him. This is how you proclaim the excellencies of Christ. This is how you do it. You model Christ. You speak Christ. Our humility, selflessness, putting others first, points to the one who bore the shame of our sin. Which is the final point we'll consider this morning. The church is built on Christ. She belongs to Christ. She proclaims Christ. She models Christ. And then finally, she points others to Christ. Back to verse 12, the second half there. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Look what they'll do. Glorify God on the day of visitation. And Peter's just telling us what the Lord himself told us. Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is why the church is the dearest place. Because she points to the dearest person. This is your purpose. And do this with all of your might. So this week, how might you point others to Christ? Might you point others to Christ in the way you do your work this week? After all, the Bible says, work heartily as unto the Lord. 
And we do this because of all of the times which we slacked off in our job. All those times that we gave half-hearted effort, Jesus never did that. Jesus did all things well. He died for our unwillingness to work. And so in him, we can work heartily. Perhaps you might point others to Christ this week in the way that you treat them. In the way that you treat your spouse. After all, Christ loved you, gave himself up for you when you were undeserving, ill-deserving. He loved you when you were unlovely. And thus, having been forgiven and united to Christ, you treat others as he treated you. Not counting their sin against them. Loving them when they're acting unlovely. Perhaps you might point others to Christ in the way that you spend your money this week. Christ gave his whole life to bring sinners to salvation. He did nothing but what the Father committed him to do. And so he did so to save a rebellious people like us from the penalty of our sin. And having been forgiven of our sin, we give our life to our Father's purpose. And this means that we live below our means. We live simply. We sacrifice comforts so that we might give generously to go to the unreached or to send others to the unreached. Perhaps you might point others to Christ this week by helping someone else in the faith grow deeper in the faith. Jesus spent all of his days with his disciples teaching them about the Father. He did the same thing to you. He discipled you through someone else. So this week, perhaps you could do the same. Take someone out to lunch or coffee or have them over to your home and encourage them. Open the Bible, encourage them from the Word. As we bring these two churches together into one new church, what of, what, whatever, whatever she becomes, she must be this. A redeemed community built on Christ, who proclaims Christ, who models Christ, and who points others to Christ. And so Christ is all and all. Let's pray. Father, we come to you humbled by your purpose for our lives, recognizing and yes, now confessing that we are a selfish people. Having convinced ourselves that our time and our money and our talents, they're our own. Convinced ourselves that you gave them to us so that we can accomplish our own purposes. Forgive us, Lord, for having derived too much of our identity from our culture. And have mercy on us. But please open our eyes to see the glorious purpose for which you created us. And enable us by the power of your spirit to walk. To walk out your purpose on the earth. So this week, Lord, may we give little thought to the size of our things, to the number of our things, to the quality of our lives, to the comfort in our lives. And instead, Lord, give great thought to the glorious purpose of our lives. To make much of Jesus. And as we do this, Lord, grant us joy in doing it. May the glitter of all else lose its luster. 
make us wholly unsatisfied until we're fully satisfied in Christ. To the degree that we are proclaiming His excellencies. For it's in His, his precious and powerful name that we pray.